Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 108, a continental careening podcast with me, Dan, on the eternal quest for bad movies in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, wishing that there were some better movies in the cinema (laughs) in Cambridge, UK. Uh, In this podcast, we mull thoughtfully over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy because post-apocalyptic water parks are our idea of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Conrad, how are you? Hey, Dan, I'm very well. How are you doing? Good, yeah. Always watching bad movies. I I don't know (laughs) what it is. I, I, I almost... It's like I need to have a balance of good movies and bad movies. Or, or, or maybe I need to watch the bad movies to appreciate the good movies. I'm not sure. Maybe, yeah. yeah. The last time I went to the cinema, I, I saw Where the Crawdads Sing. Ah, yes. And, oh my goodness, that I, I don't know. It must be resonating with a certain demographic, but for me it was just risible and I had trouble not laughing out loud in the theatre. And, and I did sometimes, and I'm apologising to anybody who was in the screening with me, but I was chuckling at some of the ridiculous, unbelievable human behaviour. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a romantic pulp novel i guess i thought it was better than that yeah i mean i don't know especially the overly romantic movies i don't really get like i i don't get the notebook like there's you know there's huge popularity for the notebook didn't i didn't right. really get it um so i don't know maybe maybe we're just not very romantic <laughs> Well, maybe. No, I think I am, though, because, you know, I cry at the the drop of a hat in a movie, but I I guess I need relationships that are a little bit more complicated and um, fascinating and relatable, whereas, yeah, what I was looking at did not... (laughs) <laughs> did not resemble normal human <laughs> behavior of any kind okay. so i was a bit nonplussed so so what bad movies have you been watching uh so i have mentioned uh in our minnesota and in our socials uh i watched american werewolf in paris just atrociously bad <laughs> atrocious uh i also watched uh the um the m night Shyamalan movie the visit which oh my. i really think it's terrible <laughs> I don't. A lot of people have have said it's his return to form, and I'm confused. I don't see how it is. <laughs> it's real. It's a terrible movie with a twist you saw coming a mile away. And kids that don't act like kids, they don't speak like how kids speak. Uh, and oh the humor is oh, falls flat every time. I did. Yeah, I didn't like didn't like that movie at all. Oh dear. Um, and it's found footage. That's the the oh. least convincing found footage movie I've ever seen in my entire life. So oh. yeah, I wasn't a fan. Uh, don't go watch the visit. <laughs> <laughs> 
All all I know about it is uh, that it has a a small white child rapping, and that was enough to send me running for the hills because there's nothing I find more cringeworthy. (laughs) So, uh, moving on, Conrad, anything in our mailbag today? So when we were talking about City of Ember, we were asking people about their favourite fantasy franchises uh, that struck up during that big sort of rush after Ah, Harry Potter. And uh, Eddie Coulter said, even though it's a bit of a Potter clone, I enjoyed Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief because I'm a fan of Greek mythology. However, my favourite is Love and Monsters. Ah. As was mentioned in the episode, it has a great story and characters plus some excellent creature designs. I was disappointed by the City of Ember film when it came out, but I liked the concept enough that I ended up reading the book, which I thought was a great read. Mm. So, mm, there okay. you go. I wonder if he's read the, the, the whole series, because that would be interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how it develops and how accurate the movie is mm. to the book. Yeah, yeah, please tell us. Please tell us. Yeah, please do tell us. Percy Jackson? Is that something? I think you said that yeah, you liked I didn't, that as well. Yeah, I didn't mind the movies. I mean, the second movie is definitely way worse than uh, <laughs> than the first one. But I, I didn't mind the first one. I think, yeah, the mythology I enjoyed. I mean, I grew up watching Hercules and Xena on TV, so that's got to say something. <laughs> right, okay. Joe Lipsit of the Horror Quiz got in touch to let us know that uh, Johnny Mnemonic is going to be released in an exclusive new black and white version on Blu-ray. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yes. It's, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'd, I'd be willing to try it for sure. Uh, um, I mean, I might, I might make some of the sort of dodgy CGI look better. Because it's yeah, not so, maybe. you know, bright and neon looking. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, it, couldn't you just buy the normal Blu-ray and turn the saturation down <laughs> on your TV? Or is, yeah. I suspect it probably involves a little bit more careful colour, great colour, quote-unquote grading than that. Yeah, surely. Um, I've seen the black and white version of Frank Darabont's The Mist, and that actually is my preferred version of that movie. And right. I think it's the director's preferred oh, okay. version too. There are other ones. I think Mad Max Fury Road came out in like That's a right. yes. black yes. and steel or chrome or something edition, yeah. which I haven't seen. Yeah, um, I, I think, think Logan, Bong Joon-ho did. Logan, uh, the, the Marvel uh, movie Logan also came out in black and white, which I, I have seen clips of and it looks, it looks amazing, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Mm. Um, if you've heard of any other examples, the only other one I can think of is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which yes. I haven't seen. But he did a black and white version of that. If you can think of any others out there, let us know. Yeah. yeah, On the flip side, you did show me the colorized, AI colorized version of um, uh, Night of the Living (laughs) Dead, which was really interesting to watch. (laughs) Well, that's just sacrilege. That's just wrong. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) It's so interesting, though, because it's, yeah, how, how AI has, you know, chosen colors and gotten some of them wrong. I just don't know how you can, how can you pick what what color is that t-shirt? I don't how do you mm. I don't know. Mm. Just, I just find it very odd. Okay. Very very odd. On the sender, Louis Saavedra said, "I've learned so much with you guys about films I never knew existed. Keep on sharing them." So mm. I think mission accomplished. Yes. For yes. Louis, uh, which is great. Mm. 
we were talking about one of the three horror tropes that are being explored in the sender is the religious mother. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Um, the overbearing mother figure. And Wicked Person said, I can tell you that my mother, though certainly not overbearing, is religious and definitely created slightly odd children. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, are you telekinetic and telepathic, though, Wicked Person? Because oh. that seems to be a side effect often. Yeah, I think spontaneously <laughs> combusting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let us know. Yes. And finally, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh, of Hello, course. Serge. Hello, Serge. And he said, The Sender is a meticulously crafted little thriller which neatly bridges the gap between the grounded psychological horror of the 70s with the more surreal splatter horror of the 80s. It sank without trace back in 1982, but in hindsight, I don't think it deserves to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. Very good summary. I love that idea that it's bridging the intellectual horror of the 70s mm. with the effects-laden 80s, but in a, yeah, in a way that complements both. I, yeah, it's very good. Mm. Very, very good. Yes, yes. So, yeah, we loved hearing from you, everyone. Please do keep sending those messages in. Yeah. So, Dan... What we will be fishing out of the oubliette today? <laughs> well, we'll just drop a line and see. I'm in the ocean, the world's water. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. I'm just gonna splash around. Hang on, there's got to be something around here. It's a lot of a lot of rubbish, colanders. <laughs> oh, here it is. I'm coming back. Oh, infertile machine. Oh, why, why, why does Oubliette just continuously get flooded, Conrad? <laughs> What's going I on with no that I have no idea. <laughs> we, we're always getting wet in there. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I know, <laughs> so, especially this year. <laughs> so what do you have? Well, today we will be discussing uh, from 1995, the American sci-fi adventure film Waterworld, ah. directed by Kevin Reynolds. Uh, written by Peter Rader and David, I can never pronounce his name, Tui or Twoey? Twoey? Yeah. Twoey? I don't I'm know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The guy that... I'd love to get him on the pod just so we can find out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the guy that directed Pitch Black anyway. Um, and it also stars uh, Kevin Costner, uh, Gene Triplehorn, Dennis Hopper, Tina Margarino, Michael Jetta, Gerard Murphy... R.D. Call and Kim Coates. Ah, and what happens in this movie? Well, uh, it's set in the future where the polar ice caps have melted and flooded the world. The human population has to survive afloat the vast, endless ocean. Our reluctant hero, the Mariner, is tasked with finding the paradise of dry land by Helen and young girl Enola, who happens to have the map tattooed on her back but the treacherous pirates named smokers led by the merciless deacon will stop at nothing to gain the girl with her inked charts will the three get to dry land with depleted hydro giant deadly sea monsters and everyone they meet trying to rob them let's find out as we deep dive into water world <laughs> And deep dive is a big clue to the special guests that we have with us today to yes. help us explore the wonderful watery world 
of the two Kevins. Yeah. Okay. Let's get salty with Waterworld. <laughs> okay. After the break. After the break. Our special guests today hail from a YouTube channel that shimmers like a happy oasis in a desert of hot takes from angry channels with names like Your Movie Sucks and I Hate Everything. It's <laughs> Film Joy, a place where you can learn to love movies again. And we're overjoyed to be joined by these bastions of artistic appreciation, Zoe Wells and Mikey Newman. Hello. Hey. Hello. Hello. Welcome. That was the nicest thing anyone's ever said. Yeah. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. I'm a little scared that those other YouTube channels are going to come after us now. I'm a little yeah. scared about I my mean, Twitter, but it's fine. It's I fine. mean, I hate everything. At least we know what we're getting. The name's on the tin, so. It is. It is. We actually love both of those channels. But, oh, um, we do. We do. But we're very excited to have you here, principally because of Deep Dive. I just love Love the theme of deep dive, which is that people send you movies in your PO box. Yeah. And to be honest, it's kind of shit posting in your PO box. Yes. Because they are they are movies that, you know, didn't get the best reception first time around. And you guys watch them on a sofa with Oreos and try to find something to be happy about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great mission. It's actually kind of rewarding because like a lot of times it will sort of inform us that maybe people just hated a thing on the first day and then everyone sort of, because I remember Green Lantern and Power Rangers where I was like, do I not trust any movie reviews anymore? <laughs> right. <laughs> These yeah. are fine. We're watching it with our friends, right? So it yeah. makes it so much easier to like things right. when you're surrounded by people who you like, right? If you're just watching something on your own, you're a lot more critical, I think, than when you have friends around and you can be like, well, that was silly, <laughs> but enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, also, Mikey, I have to say that an element of the format of this show was shamelessly stolen from a podcast that you did with the lovely Will Wheaton oh, some time wow. ago. TV crimes. <laughs> TV crimes, yes. Yeah. So the whole idea of keeping the audience waiting for a final verdict on whether the film should be saved or not does come from TV crimes, which I lapped up and I can't find online anywhere anymore. Mm. I never realized one thing I needed in my life to keep me going was was Will Wheaton being unfair to garbage TV from the 80s. Like, there's still a hole in my soul a little bit. Uh, but there might be another episode someday. Who knows? Well, my dream is to reunite you both on this show Ooh. so that you can do verdicts on strange movies. Now, the strange movie, or should we say estranged movie, that you've chosen for us to talk about today... Waterworld, yes, the 1995 post-apocalyptic action film reuniting director Kevin Reynolds and star Kevin Costner. Twice the Kevins! <laughs> I thought we could kick off by talking about our history with this film. So, Zoe, is this something you saw in cinemas at the time, or is this your first experience of Kevin's watery world? It is uh, the first time Ooh. I've experienced it. I recently, I was very excited that we were watching it because one of the Minecraft YouTube I watch was using it as inspiration. Oh, wow. So I was like, cool, I'll have some context, some deep lore into what Zoe does on her free time. But I'd heard of it, but I had heard of it in kind of the same vein as like the Mad Max, you know, Apocalypse Now, 
I was introduced to the postman after we watched it because Amazon suggested it. <laughs> I was like, well, now I want to watch that movie. But no, this is the first time I've seen it. And so um, I'm very excited to chat about it. Yes, I'm very pleased that you're here uh, so that it's not three guys talking about it because there are some issues. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. I think it's fair to say. Correct. Uh, Mikey, how about you? I think I have a weird history with this movie because I wanted to, like when Movies of Mikey, my show first started, I did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Like I was doing 90s movies and I started going down a rabbit hole and writing an episode about Waterworld because it's really interesting how both Kevins take over the world with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, a smash success. And... Waterworld is like this deep, weird, emotional character study of all these people that live on the ocean and make clothes out of like trash they find in the ocean. Like, I will not forget Colander Head for the rest of my like a Colander like sun hat is so. But I, yeah, apparently the Kevins don't like each other so much. And I think the actual only issue this movie has is they didn't invite Brian Adams back to make a love song that would catapult their movie. And I think that was the mistake Waterworld made. A perfect film. Except for. Except for. The soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, we were denied another number one for 36 weeks or whatever it was in the UK. Wow. Dan, is this your first time seeing Waterworld? No, I did watch it when I was a teenager. Not when it came out, but yeah, when I was a teenager. I, I remember watching it around the same time I watched Cutthroat Island as well, which was another big flop. Another water-based <laughs> movie as well. Right after like big movies, though, because Cutthroat Island was Rennie Harlan, and he makes the absolute classic Long Kiss Goodnight, mm. and then immediately follows up with Cutthroat Island. Yeah. Arguably not the coolest action movie of all time. I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. It's fun. But yeah, watching Waterworld again with sort of more mature eyes, there are really good parts of it and really bad Mm -hmm. parts of it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just Mad Max on water. Yeah. Yeah, And I think the screenplay writer, Peter Raid, has been quite open about the fact that he was approached originally with the concept of just do a Mad Max ripoff. Because if you want a cheap movie that you can direct... Just do Mad Max because we just need some scrap mm-hmm. and you're done. And he came back with, how about Mad Max on water? And they said, you're crazy. That's going to cost a fortune. It did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this is one of the things that the film was most criticized for was its ballooning budget. So I did have a look. It's recorded as $175 million, wow. which inflation adjusted is $306 million now. Mm. Yeah, Marvel movies tend to come in at about $200 million each. The only film really that tops it is Titanic, which had a budget of two hundred million. Also shot on the water. Yeah, also water. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're learning water's expensive. Yeah, it's very. It is. Yeah. Yeah, I think Kevin Reynolds asked Steven Spielberg for his advice, and I think his advice was run, run for the hills. <laughs> Incredible. Because <laughs> this was shot in Hawaii. Yeah, they built like a tank off the coast, I think, and then kept everything in that tank. I mean, it's an incredible production. I mean, especially the atoll that you see in the first act, which is like 
100 million tons of steel and could be seen from Mars or something. It's just, <laughs> it really does give the film a sense of epic scope. Well, and that's the thing is, it does look expensive. Mm. I will give it that. Oh, yeah. And what I can't get over, especially watching pre 2000s movies is it's just all practical as well. Oh, I know. Just yeah. All these practical effects of jet skis flying through the air off ramps and stuff. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. And Kevin Costner, give him his due, he seems to be doing an awful lot of stunt work himself. Yeah. There were a couple of times where he was just like throwing himself around, but it was very graceful and it looked very purposeful. So I was impressed. I mean, a lot of swinging. Yeah. Even when it seems unnecessary, like when the guy's steals his limes at the beginning of the movie and he's being taunted with limes but still needs to swing over to his lime tree to check right. just to make sure <laughs> yeah he's not just randomly being teased with limes yeah. oh those are other limes yes no no, no uh, they are his limes they are his <laughs> but here's his errol flinning cutting ropes and flying up to the top of the mast and it's impressive and dangerous because I, oh. I remember reading there was one incident where there's that beauty shot where he's at the top of the mast and the trimaran is going off into the sunset. And apparently that's him strapped to the top of the mast so he doesn't fall off. And the wind picked up and they couldn't catch it. So it's like, oh. by <laughs> Kevin Costner. <laughs> Sent out to sea. <laughs> yeah, it's like they did finally catch him, but yeah, it was hazardous. Mm. But for some reason, the press around this movie was that it was going over budget. They were behind schedule. They were killing stunt people left and right. Wow. And none of it was true. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was going to ask, like, wait, did that actually happen? Because the stunt people were my favorite part of this movie mm. by far. No, none of it's true. So it's really interesting watching the documentary where the whole cast and the director just puzzled by the venom. Mm. So what you're saying is that movie making and uh, fan reaction has changed 0%. Zero. Absolutely <laughs> not. In the 27 years since this movie. Well, it's interesting, the dynamic, because it's not fans, it's the press. And I'm not yeah. I'm not entirely sure why they turned against this movie. Or was it trying to take Kevin Costner down because he'd been too popular? I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, this was like Kevin in his, yeah, the peak Kevin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He'd done Dance with Wolves, Robin Hood, Bodyguard. Yeah. He's at his A game. Was it true that Kevin Reynolds left this project and Kevin Costner had to direct the rest of the film and edit the rest of the film or oversee editing? He didn't leave mid-shoot, but he did leave during post-production. Sure. So apparently Kevin Reynolds' preferred cut of this movie was three hours long, much more serious in tone, darker, and the Mariner character, Kevin Costner's character, was quote-unquote unlikable. Right. But... I mean, he's still unlikable. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not great now. <laughs> he throws a child off a boat and is like, see you in death, idiot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's not exactly yeah. likable. No, and even no. after the ending when he's supposed to be likable, it still doesn't quite land that way. Yeah, he just leaves them. Yeah, Mad Max <laughs> rules are I have to wander off alone. Right. Yeah, abandons them on some island. Yeah. Yeah. The only one. Yeah, I guess. The only, the only single island. Hopefully they have limes. <laughs> I think the first act is solid. Yeah. You introduce the world. Mm -hmm. They've got a whole language, a whole new economy that seems to be based on dirt. 
I don't know what they use it for, but dirt. Mm-hmm. And the money, like, it looked like bottle caps. Yeah. Like, what was that? Yeah, they don't actually explain it. They're just like, oh, it's going to cost you this much. And he throws, like, pogs at them. And then <laughs> he gets a tomato plant. That's in the Kevin Reynolds Lost Director's Cut when they explain the money. Oh, okay. I, I just made that up. I have no idea. Oh, <laughs> man, you you got me hook, line, and sinker. Pun intended. Um, I haven't even started describing the mariner as a cold fish yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a taciturn, loner. It's a Western, basically. Mm. And he goes to this outpost and trades and then tries to leave. And the townspeople turn against him for some small details, like him having webbed feet and gills. Sure. Um, and then they schedule him for recycling in avocado mash. But then the atoll that they're living in is attacked by Dennis Hopper and his roving band of smokers mm-hmm. who are still burning fossil fuel, even after the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. I, the ice caps are already melted. I mean, you can't melt them more. <laughs> yeah, what what more true. damage are we going to do? Yeah, <laughs> so just give up now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, once the entire earth is water, I feel like... Yeah, you give yeah. what you get, you know? You take what you can have. Just g- yeah. have yourself an avocado oatmeal bath. And just, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, and then you have this incredible action sequence that so kind good. of looks like a stunt show. Mm. So incredible. So I was sitting down to watch this with my partner, Tara, who the whole time is like, I've never seen this. I've never seen this. Oh, I kind of like this. It's interesting. The second the jet skis show up, like in that first action scene, she's like, I have seen this. I know it. And then she was remembering the Waterworld stunt show from like Universal Studios. Oh. So Waterworld canon to her was the stunt show that lasted like six years longer than anyone remembers that movie. Wow. And I just think that's funny. It's cool. That's it's great. Interesting. Yeah, no, the jet skis were probably my favorite part. And mm. Best part, right? Yeah, well, that or the people who are water skiing off of a plane. Oh, yeah. Just a wild sort of arrangement. Like, what are they going to do when they are attached to water skis in the plane? Yeah. But it looked cool as fuck. Yeah. I know, it's definitely perilous, you know, <laughs> launching these people in water skis. At a wall, pretty much. Right. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> well, and I, I think you actually see, I don't know if it's one of the water skiers or somebody else, but they get launched over and they splat right in front of camera. Like, yeah. they do not get up again. Yeah. And so I'm just like, who's volunteering for this? Yeah. For Mad Max rules, though, if you remember back to the cult from Fury Road, you just got to brainwash them into doing everything in your bidding and dying for your, uh, you know, continued wealth. Right. Which Dennis Hopper does do. Yeah. I love Dennis Hopper in this. Yeah. He's just an amazing villain. Dennis Hopper was great. Larger than life. Ridiculous. He was so ridiculous, but also so dry. Mm. Like there were a couple of lines where he was just like the line delivery of shoot him, shoot him, which is approximately the line delivery that I just gave reading it. (laughs) (laughs) You're hired. Was incredible because it's like one of his first lines in the film. And he's just like so bored. Shoot him. Like another atoll raid. Fine. (laughs) But I'm surprised to see, you know, after one of the biggest concerns on Robin Hood was the fact that Alan Rickman stole the show as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Right. To the point that that was the reason that Kevin Reynolds left that movie during the post-production stage. 
that yet again we have Kevin Costner playing a very dour, mm. pretty much unlikable main character, which certainly isn't the case with Robin Hood. But I mean, it's worse here, I think, the challenge that he's faced with on paper. And yet again, they get a larger-than-life villain that's just chewing up the scenery mm. and delivering lines apparently ghost-written by Joss Whedon in a last-minute rewrite. Oh, mm. this is around speed, because he did the same thing for Dennis Hopper on speed. Right. Really? Right. Huh. So, yeah, it's just surprising that they would let him be upstaged by the villain. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is Dennis Hopper is, like, gone for all of Act 2, or he, like, he shows up for, like, the two minutes to be absolutely show-stopping amazing and then he sends his minions out who are just the most incapable human beings <laughs> to go do yeah. all of it and then he, he comes back in the third act to really solidify his you know amazing villainhood but mm. he's sort of gone for a lot of the movie and like can we be honest i'm actually now sad i've fallen into a depression during this podcast because the thought of alan rickman being the villain in this movie Stop. has absorbed my life that would be amazing <laughs> that's, that's all right yeah alan rickman as a pirate yeah I, I would totally have been on board with that oh <laughs> wasted opportunities hollywood i don't know dennis hopper did a great job yeah he he brought a lot of king koopa energy to it too you guys maybe asked the wrong person to be on this podcast because i don't watch many movies so i was on imbd being like where have i seen dennis hopper before and i'm sure everybody is like Everywhere. You've seen him everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but I just didn't realize it. And one of the first things is like, oh, he was King Koopa in the Super Mario Brothers movie? Yeah, I know him. What he's best known for. Uh, That's incredible, actually. The foil to John Leguizamo. That was where I recognized him from because I was a 90s baby. So I would have been about four when this movie came out. So was not the target demographic. So I had a fun time figuring out where I had seen these people before. The little girl I recognized from... Andre! Yes. Ah. I was like, it's the girl from Andre! The 90s teens mm. rap. No, see... I was 13 when this movie came out. I knew Napoleon <laughs> yeah. Dynamite for her. Mm -hmm. And then the mm -hmm. Jack Black cameo was great fun as well. I was shocked because I didn't notice him in the movie. It wasn't until the credits rolled. Yeah, no. Where I was like, what the fuck? Jack Black was in this movie? <laughs> well, he's a struggling, like, B actor at this point. Yeah. Because he's a, a jackal comes out right after this, the movie where he famously explodes bullet by bullet. Mm. Uh, no, we were watching it on Amazon Prime, and when you pause it, they'll show you the actors that are in the scene. And so both Sam and I are like, what the fuck? Who's Jack Black? What? what? Like, this can't be right. <laughs> wow. And then we started paying attention and we're like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess it is. How wild. Wow. I completely missed it. Who is he? He is He's the, the pilot. pilot who cannot shoot a rope from three feet away. Oh. The part he was born to play. <laughs> so Helen harpoons the plane and attaches it to the boat and harpoons the guy with the gun mm. and then jack black's plan to detach the <laughs> plane from the harpoon is to shoot it like seven or eight times because mm. that's how many times it takes him oh. to shoot the thing from out the window to the door behind him <laughs> i think he gets one line as well yeah i think he does have one does he? he he says something like jimmy or whatever when his friend gets harpooned in the chest <laughs> um yeah 
I mean, the body count is huge in this movie. Actually, so I was surprised. So much death. Well, it's it's also the ninety eight percent of the whole world before you even start the movie. Right. <laughs> oh wow! Very high <laughs> body count. If you count that, yeah, of yes. course. <laughs> Kevin Costner isn't responsible for that. But yeah, the third act, he's slaughtering people left and right, and you're supposed to be like, yay, go murder. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I did find the balance of tone kind of strange. Like, yeah. most of it was wholesome and romantic, I guess. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that's what they were going for, but n- no. <laughs> they tried. They, they did try. Did they make Helen a real human character? Okay. Or did they make her a plot device that never really came to fruition? <laughs> okay, she literally throws her body at Kevin Costner at one point, so yes, I back down. Hmm. Thank you. Correct. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Act two is problematic, shall we say. It sits somewhere in between two tropes that pop culture detective has talked about in video essays I really like. One is abduction as romance, which this kind of is because Helen can't get off the boat, Mm. and belligerent romance, which is that whole Sam and Diane on Cheers type of thing where they hate each other so much they're bound to be together. And it's, yeah, it's not great in terms of a representation of a relationship. It's not a relationship yeah (laughs) they're two people stuck on a boat together he tries to sell her for a magazine at some point (laughs) yes and doesn't flinch an awful lot when the guy that's trying to buy gene triple horn for two pages of a magazine says can i swap for 45 minutes with the little girl instead because i like to do all the talking if you know what i mean yeah that part didn't love it i'll be really honest with you Yikes. Not great. (laughs) Um, Doesn't age well. The thing is that I actually think the movie ages pretty well overall because it's an apocalypse movie, right? It's the end of the world. Yeah. We've seen that a bunch of times and like, who knows, right? We're not there just yet. uh, So we don't know what the apocalypse looks like. Mm. If they had just cut out that scene with the second drifter, infinitely better movie, in my opinion. Mm. Everything you just said is correct. But you said we haven't been to the apocalypse yet and we don't know what it looks like. Yeah, no. Small pressure to that statement. Small. No, I said yet. Possibly. (laughs) That's why I said yet, Michael. Okay. Hey. No, you're right. That's why I was trying to choose my words carefully. It's happening now. Let's go. Um. Waterworld, here we come. COVID Waterworld. That's that's the future. It's the sequel. (laughs) So I think they made a few simple mistakes in the script when they were trying to make their central character likable and compelling. I think it's customary to include a scene where your protagonist is kind to children normally, Mm -hmm. whereas in this film, he scolds her, Mm. he mocks her artistic endeavours, he takes her crayons away. Cut her hair. Yeah, hacks at her hair with a knife. And he does that to Helen as well. I'm not sure if that's just punishment or if he intends to use the fibres for something. I think it's to repair the net that they lost. Mm. Right. That was my assumption. Uh... Yeah. In the Ulysses cut, there is a scene where somebody tries to sell their hair. So I think there is something there, but still it just kind of looks like... No, it looks like he's just a crazy person who's like, (laughs) I don't know. Oh, yeah. Again... He does throw the child over the boat yes. and is like, well, no more her, I guess. And like, He's not exactly good. No, no, not at all. 
But then they have a lovely exchange where the little girl, who at least is not phased by his behaviour, I mean, if she was sobbing uncontrollably throughout, then I think we'd have a problem. But no, she seems completely unfazed by him and calls him on his behaviour. And then they bond over their shared outsider status. And then we get a sunrise swimming lesson. Yeah. And then in the very next scene, he's prepared to die for her. Yeah. It's quite the turnaround. Yeah. That scene where they're swimming... I was like, this is very sweet and must be from a different movie because it was so (laughs) tonally different than the rest of the Mariner. And even the little girl was like having fun and like being nice and everything, which is not really her MO, which is fine. Kids are kids. But (laughs) yeah, it was a really lovely scene that just gave me whiplash. Mm. Yeah. Dan, what did you think about the Mariner's uh, character arc? Yeah, it's not a really believable arc. It's almost like a a circle as well. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, he's just a bit of a dick because he leaves them again. (laughs) So it's also like unlearned lessons because he's like, like that scene where they're swimming. He's like, oh, I'm a dad now. I get it. Like, I'm responsible for this tiny person. And he absolutely leaves her alone, like with the lady on the island at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so he also doesn't accept his own, like, strength. Yeah. And then when we get to the finale, I think, unfortunately, the film's production sort of lets it down. Mm. The finale on the Exxon Valdez, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is great. Mm-hmm. I love that. A pure sentence. No notes. <laughs> yes. The finale on the Exxon Valdez, they decided to shoot it dry for wet and just surround the boat set with blue screen and then comp everything in. So the finale of this movie is just 1990s compositing, optical compositing, and it kind of tears me out of my suspension of disbelief. Well, especially compared to the Atoll at the beginning, which was just like real, real, real huge. 90% of the budget of the movie was spent on the Atoll, and they're like, oh, crap. Oh, (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. I noticed in the plane shots, it looked like they were doing rear projection on top of like some bad blue screen. Like the ending looks like really squiffy. Is that a word? It is now. I'm going to say it looks squiffy. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, and also because (laughs) they kind of do that montage thing where they have the main focus being on the bad guys, but then you have like a montage of Kevin Costner just, you know, murdering everyone in the background. It kind of takes away the tension of him sneaking on the boat as well. So it doesn't quite work. Yeah, he does this like really great, like hides his face and stuff to get onto the boat and then just murders so many people and like (laughs) some of them are secret but most of them are just like i don't know i'll shove him off a boat whatever let's explode the whole thing which was my favorite part because i'm a big fan of straight up murder which is take the easiest option of just killing someone and that's what he did with the flare into the diesel fuel which led to my second favorite line, which was the guy who was in the diesel pit saying, oh, thank God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was absolutely the best part of it. Oh, thanks. So good. <laughs> uh, I mean, and yeah. some of the murder is, is like, it's horrible murder. Like he drowns two guys right. by just holding them underwater. Oh, yeah. He holds their legs under. Yeah. Yeah. Because he can breathe and they can't. It's a horrendous way to go. Well, and it, it's so involved modern sensibilities are like oh yeah there was murder but it's like 
off screen or we faded to black first. No, you see him just like, yeah, yep, these guys are going to drown. And then you're like, okay, <laughs> bud, you're doing some stuff. <laughs> I'm a dad. I'm a real dad. <laughs> yeah. I love my little girl so much. <laughs> One swimming lesson, and now I'm ready to kill everyone. <laughs> An entire oil tanker. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Okay, Conrad, I believe you have found some trivia in a sunken city today. I have some fun trivia about Smeet if you'd like to hear it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Why have you held on to it for so yeah. long? I, I have no idea now. So, um... The hearty cooked processed meat in a can product the Deacon showers on the crew of the Exxon Valdez like he's making it rain. It's a fictional brand, of course, and it's become quite popular since its first appearance in Waterworld. It shows up in the TV shows Millennium, Beverly Hills 90210, Burn Notice, Supernatural, Days of Our Lives, The Walking Dead, Twice, Being Human, The Kids Are Alright, and most recently Marvel's The Punisher, as well as the film's Children of the Corn 5, wow. directed by Ethan Wiley, who we recently interviewed, uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, oh. and the Beck music video Sex Laws. Um, and if you're interested, sightings wow. are being tracked on smeet.net. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> if you see any, just let the, the webmaster of smeet.net know and he will add it to the list. Incredible. <laughs> there you go. That's... That's like the wow. best trivia question. Yeah. If you're like, what do these things have in common? Smeet. Say that at a movie trivia night. <laughs> I don't know how many Smeets you're going to be getting. Yeah. But, you know, it's 2022. I think there should be a vegan alternative to Smeet. Mikey. It's called Smote. There it is. I knew Mikey would come through. I was like, Mikey, you're good at naming things. I've seen your brainstorms. Oh, there you go. Man. Problem solved. And that's our trivia. Yes. <laughs> Can I say a sentence? Tell me if you agree or disagree. I would say Waterworld is as good as a ensemble post-apocalyptic movie as Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, mm. a.k.a. the bad one. But <laughs> it's Thunderdome levels. Correct. So it's fun and goofy yeah. and dumb. Yeah. I rest my case. Yeah, I mean, I don't see what the huge adoration for Mad Max is as well. Like the first movie is quite boring. Not a lot happens in the first movie. The second movie, there's some terrible acting, especially by the children. Just really horrendous. Hearing this from an Aussie? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the third movie is just like a parody. You've got Tina Turner in it. It's like, what, what is happening? So Yeah, I, but Fury Road. Yeah, I mean, Fury Road is a masterpiece. Like, okay. yeah, there's, there's no okay. contest. No okay. contest. Yeah. Then we're good. Um, <laughs> then we're good. I find Waterworld, it's not as bad as Mad Max, but Mad Max is kind of heralded as this, like, you know, amazing thing. But I don't think Waterworld is that bad. I, I also don't. I like it. Yeah. It's good, bad 90s crap. Totally agree with Mikey. I liked it quite a bit. And here's my one argument for the Mariner being a fully unlikable character, which he is. <laughs> I get it. He's ostracized by all humans. And when they figure out that he has gills and webbed feet, which like 
really on the grand scheme of things is a useful trait when the world is covered in water. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're going to recycle you in our avocado toast. And, <laughs> and it's buck wild, especially when the atoll figures it out after they've asked him to impregnate what looks like teenager because they know that inbreeding is bad. So like good for them. Wouldn't that be useful? Like, wouldn't it be nice to have more fish people around? But their response is, no, this is a sin against nature. And they try to murder him immediately when he's like, I'm just trying to leave. Like, I don't want anything more from you. So I actually understand why the Mariner is distrustful of people. Mm, And I think Helen is also a bad character who makes bad choices. And so him being distrustful of people after dealing with her, like attaching his boat to a plane. Yeah. Also makes sense. Yeah, she's not exactly helpful. It's kind of that 90s action girl trope where women are allowed to finally have agency and do things, but they're always dumb and bad and the poor guy has to sort it out. Right. They're making the situation worse. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I found she didn't really have much to do. Mm -hmm. Like, and they didn't do the the action movie thing where she's helpful at the end, where she hands him a gun or hands him a sword (laughs) or something. She doesn't even do that. She's just around she ties off the bungee rope yeah oh very quickly (laughs) luckily (laughs) after being yelled at to do it twice yeah i'm sorry helen is really my least favorite because she's not a person she's just like i'm gonna make your life harder but also be very pretty while doing it and that's also gonna cause a problem so I don't know what to do with Helen. Like, I love that she wants to take care of the little girl and has kind of adopted her as her own, but she doesn't do a great job of that either, unfortunately. And I'm just like, oh, baby, I want to help you, but I I don't know how because you're really not trying to help yourself. Yeah, she does dress Enola in backless outfits all the time when the only thing that seems to (laughs) cause problems for her is that tattoo. Yeah, the only map in the whole world to dry land. Mm-hmm. Sure, let's just advertise that. Leave it exposed. Yeah. yeah. Sick tat, bro. Yeah, <laughs> just show it off. Yes. Well, the film looks beautiful. The cinematography is Dean Semler, who worked on a couple of the Mad Max movies and some films that we've covered on this pod before, Dead Calm. Oh, another water movie. <laughs> another water movie. Yeah, so, I mean, it looks great. Uh, What did people make of James Newton Howard's score, which was a last-minute replacement for a much um, moodier score from Mark Isham? Apparently, he only had six weeks to do it in. Wow. And Hans Zimmer felt so sorry for him that he gave him his entire sample library. Wow. I don't know if it really registered. Did he also do the music for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Because I noticed a couple of movements that seemed very similar. It might have been the result of temp tracking. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Robin Hood was Michael Kamen. Ah, And Costner brought James Newton Howard in because he'd just scored Wyatt Earp. So he'd fallen in love with his approach. And they wanted something a bit more adventuresome and exciting, which it is. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of expected, though. The way that I thought about it was it sounded like the license-free version of your favorite action score. Sure. (laughs) I want to take this movie and do an edit where when the music's going nuts, you hear premiumbeat.com. (laughs) Yes. It's perfect. Yes. Get that audio watermark. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it. I just, it definitely felt like an afterthought. So now hearing that it was <laughs> uh, makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is the writing. So this was written by Peter Rader mm. and David Tui. Oh, Twohi is it? T W O H Y. So how how do you pronounce it? I, I don't know. I, I think it's Twohi. Twohi. Okay. That's the pitch black guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's a pitch black guy, and he's a very renowned director now. Uh, it's written and directed a bunch of great movies, a lot of genre films. Some of your favorites, Conrad, right? Yeah, I'm a big fan of his work, especially sort of the B-movies that he does under his own steam, like that Ghost on a Submarine movie of his, I really like. Oh, Below, yes. Yeah, yeah. he's often called in to sort of fix things at the last minute. I think um, Peter Rader had done, you know, 18 passes of his script and they still weren't happy, so they just switched to try and get a fresh voice in there. Right. And then Joss Whedon at the last minute to punch up the dialogue, which I think was sort of a 90s thing wasn't it It was to sort of quick call joss whedon and punch up the dialogue right make it more current and then get carrie fisher to make sure the women aren't completely offensive yeah so (laughs) my husband sam is a writer so i have learned a lot about writing over the years and for me i liked the narrative design like the story arc made sense like i liked that it's an encapsulated story like they're trying to get to dry land all that stuff but the dialogue was kind of challenging right at times and sometimes just boring yeah unless dennis hopper was saying it sure so i wasn't a huge fan but i also like it got the job done yeah two things i kind of wanted more in the story is more maybe more mutant people yeah and also maybe more big fish i like that big fish (laughs) i want i want more monsters I mean, mm-hmm. it's mid-90s, limited CGI, so yeah, we see one, and you're like, what the fuck was that? I mean, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Apparently that one shot cost them $35,000, oh, uh, wow. so at that point they thought, yeah, we won't do any more Big Fish, we'll just, <laughs> okay. we'll just stop there. Right. Sure. <laughs> right. Apparently in the original script there were more mutants, like Dennis Hopper's henchmen had lobster claws here and there, and, you know, the odd octopus tentacle. It was a lot more fantastical. Oh, wow. I would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Where was that? Yeah. And to push the Western theme, apparently the mariner had a white horse on his boat. Okay, well, I'm glad they got rid of that. That's extremely impractical. (laughs) It's not going to work, is it? Especially since you have to shoot it practically, so you just have this very scared horse, like, (laughs) (laughs) on a trimaran. (laughs) Just screaming. It's a screaming horse. <laughs> yeah, so some of the rewrites make sense. It's a perfect movie. Yeah. Yes. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Okay, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite go juice fueled parts of the film in a number of mostly wet and fishy smelling categories. Best quote. Guys, I, I don't know if you'll be able to top this. It is during the Atoll Raid when the uh, turret gun is being pulled towards the main ship and they're trying to get him to stop, but he can't see because there's too much smoke in his goggles. They, they keep calling, Chuck, Chuck, like, turn away. I believe Dennis Hopper's line is then, maybe he doesn't answer to Chuck, call him Charles. <laughs> <laughs> That is going to be impossible to beat. I, I, and, like, I did not actually see the boat 
explode when it was being hit by the gun because I was writing it down as quickly as I could. <laughs> I get it tattooed on my body because this wow. is such a good line. Because then they start yelling Charles to get him to stop. And I'm just like, yeah, guys, that's the, that's the important bit. No nicknames. He only goes by Charles. Wow. It's fantastic. <laughs> I have a favorite line reading, and it's from Jean Triplehorn as Helen. And it's when they come across the second drifter. And uh, yeah, I, I just love her performance choice for this line which is maybe he has some food, but on the word food, she goes from zero to a hundred in one syllable and <laughs> blows out the microphone. Yeah. I can just hear the, 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 the boom guy, the sound guy, just like uh, recoiling in horror, yeah. <laughs> like twisting the levels down because she goes from, maybe he has some food. <laughs> Whoa, have some caffeine, Gene. Mm. What's going on? Best hair or costume? My comment on this was that just that everybody appears to have rolled in the Great Pacific garbage patch <laughs> and just gone with whatever stuck to them. Yeah. Which is appropriate, but it, it all looks sort of uncomfortable and smelly. So, yeah, I, I didn't, wasn't able to pick out a single thing. I have to go with the colander, like, sun hat, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. hat, like that, that is so perfect to me for a costume choice because I'm like, it does make a good sun hat, my spaghetti <laughs> colander. <laughs> it's cle- it's clever. It's best costuming. Yeah, I, I have to agree with Conrad. Like, there was not a lot that stood out. In terms of best hair, though, uh, the, like, first minion, Nord, I think his name is, um, with the, like, blonde oh, flowing yeah, hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. Most 90s moment. Well, there wasn't a smash cut to Limp Biscuit, so... <laughs> <laughs> so it's safe. Yeah. Um, not, gonna, not gonna beat MI2 on this one. Um, the jet skis were up there. Uh, like, yeah. everyone was... it. Like, if this movie existed on land... There would have been rollerblades everywhere. Uh, yes. Like yeah. it was mm-hmm. very like I don't know. It a lot of it. I, yeah, that's an interesting question. I yeah, I I kind of I felt like it was more 80s 90s kind of combined. Um, yeah. Just like the two things I, I noticed, like uh, the lone wolf character was very 80s and 90s. I think of all Bruce Willis characters and all Harrison Ford characters, always these kind of disgruntled reluctant heroes treating women badly most of the time and also zip lining there's a scene where he zip lines across yeah i don't know real 80s 90s thing to have a lot of zip lining going on i thought bungee jumping oh um, yes because i remember it showing up in goldeneye in 95 wallace and gromit's a close shave in 95 an American Werewolf in Paris, if anybody remembers that movie. <laughs> I do. Of the Eiffel Tower. And uh, some fun facts for you. Bungee jumping originated in the UK, in Bristol, apparently. Oh, wow. In 1979, when a man named David Kirk and uh, Simon Keeling jumped from the Clifton Suspension Bridge. They were promptly arrested. And then it was commercialised, something for you to be proud of, Dan, by a New Zealander. Oh, of course. AJ Hackett. Who first jumped from yes. the Auckland's <laughs> Green Hythe Bridge in 1986? Yeah, I mean, in 
in this movie, I didn't know it was a bungee cord. No, it, I thought it was just it isn't. a rope. So I was expecting <laughs> broken legs, like limbs being pulled off. Like. There is no indication that it is going to pull them back up. Just absolutely no. none. No. Until it happens. Yeah. Favorite scene. The atoll raid was oh. breathtaking. Yeah. Like they kind of jumped yeah. the shark by having it be so soon Early. in the movie. Mm. Um, but every part of that was beautifully done. The stunts were incredible. And it like the choreography. Like you see people running around all over the place and, and jumping off of things. It it wins in my book. Yeah. So are there any other nominations for favorite uh, scene or does that I, one win? I become the villain for this one. The scene where he throws Enola overboard because she is like <laughs> slightly pushing back against his bullshit, yeah. like none pushing back. And he's just like, well, <laughs> logically, I have to throw this tiny child into the middle of the ocean. Yeah. We laughed for 10 straight minutes. I'm like, <laughs> movies do not do that. Right. Well, it's hilarious because he does not care. He does. What's make- also comical it's just like right (laughs) right he just chucks this girl off and like could not be bothered it was like oh cool i recycled my water bottle today but it was a little girl in the ocean who can't swim well that's done want to hit up johnny rockets i guess (laughs) most cliche moment i i think for me the biggest like sci-fi action cliche is like oh, the child is the answer, right? There's like one person and everybody's after them. And and it's the only way to do this is to skin a child, which was definitely (laughs) talked about in the film. Yeah, kind of make it flat. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, that that was the problem. Not that round. (laughs) I don't know why they were like, no, we got to make this like tight. It's like, no. It's a just read it. What? <laughs> anyway, that was the biggest cliche that mm. I could kind of think of of the like, oh, there's only one child that can save this, and there's only one grizzly old man who can save the child, and it so it kind of fit into that trope. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go with gender dynamics just as a blanket. Uh huh. Yeah. Very '90s in this movie. Correct. Very '90s. Oh yeah, that's mm. very true. Mm. Oh, for sure. I personally yeah. was thrilled to see one of my favorite Star Trek cliches in this movie, which is the whole problem with interpreting this map was nothing to do with stripping it off the child and, and ironing it flat. It was reversing the polarity. Because if you've yeah. ever got a problem, just reverse the polarity. <laughs> Solved. These tachyon readings are off yeah. the charts. Just reverse the polarity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cliche for me was uh, a movie set on water where one character cannot swim. Of course, because it always oh, happens. Oh yeah, okay. Someone yeah. cannot swim despite being the whole world <laughs> being. It's water. like being born on <laughs> this <laughs> earth and Come being on. like, I can't breathe air. I don't know how. Great. <laughs> Best special <laughs> effect. Uh, I liked the underwater city. Yeah, I did yeah, too. Yeah, that was really well done. Especially the. Um, Oh my gosh, I forgot this word when I was telling Sam about it too. The uh, chairlift, which Sam then pointed out, what city has a random chairlift in the middle of it? Which is a great question. 
Um, <laughs> but the underwater city, I think, was my favorite special effect. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that was dry for wet, wasn't it? The model work is, yeah. So it's it's the old technique of filling a room with smoke and then moving a motion-controlled camera through yeah. it, much in the same way as the Hunt for Red October or the submarine work in that movie. And then the really tricky part, having the actors underwater in front of a blue screen and then compositing them underwater. So they're not sort of just in a blue screen room with their hair being blown around. They are actually underwater. So that's mm, mm. hard work. Any other special effects we want to draw attention to? I mean, we got to talk about the atoll and like all, like all the practical stuff in this movie, I think is incredible. Mm, yeah. yeah. So cool. My favorite is when they're machine gunning it and they're just sort of dinner plate sized holes just ripping through huge stretches oh, yeah. of this set with extras running for their lives as debris and smoke fly everywhere and it's one continuous shot just think the coordination yeah. of this is just mm. astonishing favorite sound effect um i don't know i sound didn't really stand out in this movie it was it was kind of expected the only thing i could really point out was the sound of the guns that they had these it looked like like mini guns heads on top of handguns yeah. and so the sound of it was kind of a deep thuddy metal bolt sound it's kind of kind of good i guess yeah glowing review <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> um one little moment that stuck out to me is when the deacon finally meets the mariner he prods him in the ribs and there's this really loud sort of squeaking rubbery noise on the soundtrack and i thought oh yes is the mariner like a, a seal or something yeah, does he have <laughs> dolphin skin what's going on yeah i was confused. i mean you're out to sea no one's showered in years. Yeah, that's true. Getting the You're a bit off. greasy. <laughs> yeah, maybe they just squeak naturally. <laughs> Most funniest moment. I really love when Gregor accidentally left without them. And he's just like, oh, I'm so oh, sorry. I'm so it was sorry. an accident. Oh. I'm so sorry. Oh, I can't do anything. Like, run. I don't know. Um, that as like an excuse to get them on the Mariner's boat was incredible. They were just, he accidentally took off without them. And so they're stuck with this like curmudgeon of the sea. This like And it's just <laughs> the oh, scientist so that knows everything about aviation is like, I forgot how balloons work. Good luck. I'll be back in act three. For me it was just one particular shot uh, during the Atoll raid. Uh, and I think it's it's only in this movie do you get the sight of a child with a lit cigarette in his mouth frantically performing semaphore <laughs> to try yes! to ward off a gunboat. <laughs> I'm not sure the semaphore was entirely accurate. No, I'd like I mean, a semaphore expert to watch these scenes because it just looks like random shit to me. Yeah, it looks pretty wavy. Yeah. But yeah. I also don't know semaphore, so... Any more funny moments, apart from Enola being thrown into the sea? Yeah, I'm, like, trying to move beyond how... Because, like, she's... She turns upside down. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, he gives her a proper Chuck. Yeah. Just, like... Just, I'm sorry, a proper Charles. And just, like, really gets rid of him. I got you, Mikey. I got you so good, Mikey. You did. You did. brought it back. Sorry, yeeted Enola. You are. <laughs> You've been Charles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
That's our Moobly Awards. Yeah. Hi, this is Jonathan McIntosh of Pop Culture Detective Agency, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's final verdict time. Should 1995's Waterworld be risen from the watery depths and sent to dry land to be loved by all, or should it be exploded in a fiery crude oil-fueled blaze and be weighted down to sink to the bottom of the oubliette and lost forever? I think no one will ever pull off anything practically on the scale that they did. So for that reason alone, you should see it just to be like, you made a boat? <laughs> um, yeah. So it, yeah. it has value. It's it's like shocking to watch yeah. it, I think. I think we should keep it. I think it being watched by all, maybe not as necessary, but if you want to go into special <laughs> effects, practical effects, definitely. Um, yeah. I liked it way more than I thought I would. I was expecting to not really care that much about it, or it was just like kind of one of those dumb one-offs or whatever. But I'm going to be thinking about those jet skis, and I'm going to be thinking about the fact that they practically shot a harpoon gun kind of willy-nilly all over <laughs> that set, and they got away with it. So I really enjoyed it. I think one or two scenes could have been cut. But overall, I think it's a fun film. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. I mean, it does kind of what it says on the tin. It's just an adventure movie with a guy that saves the day. And there's a girl in it. Um, she's in mm-hmm. it. Um, and, she is um, extant. It's j- j- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she's present. That's what matters. Um it's incredible special effects, just astonishing um, visuals and, and, and explosions and stunts. And also, I, I just really love um, Dennis Hopper's character. I, it just, I don't think it would have stood the test of time without him. Yeah. I think his, his character makes this movie. It did really remind me of another character from a movie called Turbo Kid, uh, Michael Ironside's oh, character yeah. Zeus, also has an eye patch. Yeah. Uh, very similar, so possibly influenced by this movie. So yeah, I, I, I yeah, tentatively recommend this to most people. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that that's three in the bag. So what I say doesn't matter. But I will say <laughs> that uh, I d- I just don't get the hate. I don't know why there was such a campaign against this movie before it came out. It's a '90s action blockbuster with a three act structure and. You know, looking back on it, the gender politics are not great and um, it doesn't really amount to much particularly. But, I mean, I don't hate it. There's nothing about it I hate. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I am now just realizing, though, that the people who made it to dry land are definitely just going to die there, though, huh? Because there's not (laughs) enough to repopulate, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Well, their fishermen just was like, well, see ya. I couldn't possibly be of any help. What with my webbed feet and yeah. gills. Enjoy death, <laughs> idiots. Goodbye. Yeah. No, Mikey, you're a hundred percent right. Like he really just leaves them in the lurch and is it's just weird. like, I don't know, yeah. figure out farming on your own. <laughs> Bye. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with irrigation, <laughs> morons. Like Yeah. So it's a really dark tale. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. Cool. But the journey to get there yeah. was Yeah. Entertaining. 
Okay, well, I think the verdict's in. We're going to let Waterworld float away. So let me just tie it to this mast here and give it a little push. Hey, Charles, let's get some water skis over here. Goodbye. Be free. (laughs) (laughs) So Zoe and Mikey, it's been so great having you on the podcast to talk about Waterworld today. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this movie. Where can they follow you and hear more of your thoughts on other topics? Uh, Well, you guys can check out all of our movie stuff where we try to celebrate movies over at youtube.com slash filmjoy, where you can see Deep Dive, which is our panel show where people send us terrible movies. Uh, We got to watch them and find stuff to enjoy about them. And Movies of Mikey, where I try to look at stuff in a different way for like video essays and stuff. But youtube.com slash filmjoy. Yes. Yes. And it's highly recommended. I mean, those video essays are frequently works of art in and of themselves. Yes. Thank you. They're like... uh, I don't know, haiku of introspection. Sometimes I find myself sort of tearing up at the end of them. I don't know if that's one of your goals. What? <laughs> Extreme lacrimosity. I want people to engage with art, like on the level of the people making it more than the people that just go to a movie and they're like, well, that was crap. Yeah. Because mm. like generally there's like feelings and effort sort of into like what you're trying to say. Well, when people used to make movies, they were about stuff. Uh, gotcha Marvel no uh. (laughs) yeah that video essay on the Iron Giant got to me so (laughs) that that one was like because like part of the video essay thing is like doing a video essay from the moment you're in so that one was like hard because I was like trying to write a, a piece about how much I just enjoyed that movie and then the Pulse nightclub shooting happened before I got to the ending and that became the ending. Mm. Um, so that one I is okay to cry. Like (laughs) that was a national disaster. Like it was horrible. Mm. So that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yep. Well, that one got me. (laughs) And if you want to follow us, we are movie oubliette on all our socials, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, uh, and also you can email us at movie.oubliet at gmail.com. Yes, and if you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on films that we'll be covering in future episodes and gain access to extended portions of the show. And for $5, you get access to our exclusive monthly video minisodes, as well as extended interviews with some of our special guests. Yes, yes. Our, our latest Minnesota, we talk about uh, books that we've been reading and post-apocalyptic mm. films. So uh, yeah. quite a lot of discussion was had. Indeed. Yeah, it's good fun. Yes. Uh, we've got merchandise as well available at Redbubble. So everything you could ever want to decorate your home. Uh, <laughs> or you could wear as a T-shirt. I, I really love my movie oubliette mug. It's it's almost it's getting so worn out. I almost want to get another one. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. Yeah, well, I buy half a dozen. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, Conrad, what's in store for next episode? Well, we're in the unusual situation that we can't reveal what movie we'll be covering in our next episode because we have a special guest lined up. And he hasn't told us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we will. We will find out soon. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be a surprise 
for everyone. So, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll, 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 we'll post it in our socials and when, when we're notified. <laughs> but until then, yeah. it's a pr- surprise for everyone. It is, yes. No, we'll try and get it out there so that you get a chance to watch it before the episode lands. But yeah, yes. looking forward to it anyway, because it's a great guest. Yes, and thanks again to our guests today, Mikey and Zoe from FilmJoy, talking about Waterworld. This has been really lovely. Um it's always this is gonna sound so dumb. It's always been my dream to be uh asked to be on a podcast. And yeah, I oh, wow. <laughs> I know it's a very silly one because I could probably just go start one and it would be bad, but it would <laughs> technically be a podcast. Um yes. but the fact that like a real podcast with like real production value asked me to be on it is just it's very, very cool. So thank you guys so much for having us. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, thank you. I'm very excited to listen to the episode and I hope people like it. I'm sure they will. I'm sorry that I sometimes am a gif brought to life, but Mikey (laughs) is well acquainted with that. (laughs) But thank you guys so much. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you. No, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, listeners. Goodbye. Bye for now. See y'all later. We review the films others tend to forget. Nothing like a good smoke if you miss your mom. Never too young to start.